This is the Shift Podcast. Today on the Shift Daily Podcast, Dr. Robert R.J. Johnston, lead advisor to the First Nations Climate Initiative International Advisory Committee, the FNCI, gives us an update on Canada's LNG industry with a really great look from the outside in. What are we doing right? What are we doing wrong? And what can we do to bring in more energy money to Canada with Indigenous groups on side? It's Flashback Friday. We rewind to 1992. Celebrate Disney's Aladdin. We look at the movie and dive into the big events and amazing music from 1992 plus Robin Williams' birthday. Are you okay with rabbits and auctions? No rabbits at the auction. It's all on the Shift Daily Podcast. This is the Shift Podcast. We hear so many conflicting stories all the time about different community groups and LNG and oil pipelines and all of these things. And there's one interesting group that has come out and shared their thoughts on the future of LNG. Now, liquid natural gas uh, is an interesting topic. There's so many different opinions on it. As a guy who lives in Alberta and who, you know, went to high school in Fort McMurray, I feel like I've been quite well educated on the benefits for the economy and everything else. And I've also been able to see the work that's been done in the background to make it cleaner and cleaner and cleaner through the process all the way along. Um, So for me, I've been around it all the time. And I think I understand for people who have never been around oil and gas, when they see a pipeline come through, they get a little worried about that. There is an interesting uh, conversation I look forward to having here. Uh, Dr. Robert Johnston, RJ of Geocap Advisors, is joining us now. You're the lead advisor, RJ, for the First Nations Climate Initiative International Advisory Committee. Um, The group has come out with some um, some perspective. I think it's refreshing and seems very well detailed was my 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 real look on it was. Uh, Thanks for being here. Appreciate you. Thank you, Shane. It's nice to uh, join your show, and it's a real honor to be working with the First Nations Climate Initiative on this project. Yeah. Um, so I have a friend. He works in in uh, advising for First Nations groups as well. Um, doesn't do oil and gas or specifically. Uh, he is such a big advocate of we need to not look only at Canadian communities for solutions here. We need to look at indigenous groups around the world and see how they are solving their problems and learn from everybody. Um, is that sort of what started to happen here in this look at liquid natural gas and and what the First Nations Client Initiative has taken on? Yeah, I, I think the reason that the, uh, the First Nations Climate Initiative group reached out to me was in part for the reasons that you mentioned that my career has been spent looking at global energy uh, or as I sometimes say, looking at the Canadian energy market from the outside in. So we understand that even though the headlines in Canada can be driven by fights between Daniel Smith and Justin Trudeau or fights between BC and Alberta or between Indigenous uh, communities and corporate developers, so much of what happens in our energy sector is determined by global forces, economics, markets, geopolitics. That If we don't understand those trends and the risks and opportunities that they represent, will really be missing the picture and are likely to make mistakes and develop bad policy. So I've tried to bring a global insight uh, through my work and my career, traveling the world, partnering with a lot of global organizations, working with global scholars and experts and industry, investors, governments, to make sure that, you know, the Canadian clients that I've worked with have had a good perspective on how their products are affected by global markets. Now, you are a Canadian. I mean, you you were raised in Canada. Now you live outside Canada, which gives you that little bit of an outside look in. When you speak to the First Nations uh, Climate Initiative group and you're talking to them, what do you see now from the outside in? I mean, I really... I'm excited to hear because we get do get caught up in that bubble, right? We get caught up in the carbon tax bubble. We get caught up in uh, the, some people are of the kill all the oil bubble and some people are whatever you do, don't use liquid natural gas bubble. Like people have those looks. What What is the outside look in on Canada these days? Well, it's, it's mixed as it always is. Um, but I think that there's what I saw at the LNG 2023 conference last week, which I was pleased to attend. Um, was maybe some signs of optimism on a couple of fronts. One that I think the Canadian story around LNG and some other natural resource sectors is starting to become a little bit more coherent. Um, you know, that you have brought indigenous groups into the conversation. Some of them have equity participation directly. 
the consultation process is stronger than it has been in the past. And, and the reason that's important is not just for the most important reason of historical and economic reconciliation, but also from a business perspective, when foreign investors are looking at the range of risks in Canada, the social license to operate was probably one of the most material risks for an otherwise stable country with great geological resources, a great workforce, you know, pretty good government policy. But this question of social license has been a significant barrier in the past, and it seems to be a better place now, which again is important for both reconciliation but also for so the business risk perspective. Second topic to consider is what is the overall demand for gas and who are we competing with? And that's another one of these issues that can be lost if we're not if we're too focused internally. What does global gas demand look like? What are the different scenarios? Which scenarios are beneficial to Canada's gas exports and which are not? And then when we stack up our competition with, say, the United States or Qatar in the Middle East or some of the East African producers or even Russia, you know, where, where, what are our strengths and weaknesses? What do we bring to the table? And then lastly, as our customers for those gas exports, most likely in Asia, as they move towards their own climate policies and energy security concerns and energy policy, what advantages and disadvantages does Canadian gas, particularly Indigenous-backed Canadian gas, bring to that equation? So those are kind of elements of what I think are interesting right now. So when we take that and we take that the responsibility, uh, you said reconciliation, everything else. I mean, there is a there is an element of out of balance that has occurred in a lot of ways. And in some places, it's been uh, used to a great advantage for some of the communities. Fort McMurray is such a great example. I think the Fort McI band and Fort McMurray is such a great example because they have created, I mean, they live right in the center of it all. And, but they have created uh, business and prosperity for their community. Now that's per oil, because that's exactly where they're located. But as an example, they've created well, in fact, I believe that their companies now employ more non-Indigenous people just because their growth and demand for employees is so high um, than they ever did before. And so, and that's everything. They do everything from uh, uh, cleaning to um, to trucking to like, you name it. So they've been involved. They were given a say in the very beginning, right? And a good example of how 30 years later, 40 years later, having a say um, having the invitation to participate really changes communities. Is that really what this boils down to that you hear is that we just need to be able to have a say, or is it something more complicated? I think it counts with a lot of what it is in that example, but I think the bar continues to get raised, right? So what you're describing is a sort of historically valuable model of kind of job creation and procurement, right? That a resource company comes into an indigenous territory and one of the things that they do to share benefits is hire local people, local contractors, local suppliers. That's very important, especially these mega projects like Coastal GasLink and LNG Canada. These could be enormous procurement supply chains. Um, I think the next evolution of that, to build on that, um, is really, you know, to what extent are we seeing Indigenous groups get equity ownership in the projects in their territory? And how is that equity being financed? Is, is the public sector through loan guarantees or direct you know grants supporting that? And I think the current government, Ottawa, and interestingly, the governments in Alberta and BC of different political parties are all moving that direction, saying that as part of reconciliation and resource development, there's a win-win here. Because essentially you're saying to some of the resource developers, you know, would you rather have 100% of nothing where the indigenous groups are not supporting your project or maybe have 70% of something where you're sharing equity but you've now brought a real full partner and not just someone in your supply chain, but someone who's actually a co-owner with you, mm. right? And acts like an owner, which of course, on most of these lands, they are the owner anyway. Um, yeah. And then you get the advantages of problem solving together. And if you combine that with kind of very early stage consultation, kind of at the conception stage versus, oh, we've designed a great pipeline like your sign off, that early stage consultation and consent can also be important as well. So. I think we're starting to see a nice national alignment in Canada across political parties and regions in this direction. Now the question is, can it be pulled together into a project that makes sense for everybody, including the customer? Again, bearing in mind that those customers in Japan, Korea, China, Singapore, Taiwan have choice. They generally consider price to be the most, most consideration. So we have to do our best-in-class environmental work, our climate work, our indigenous work, and still deliver the gas at a competitive price. 
So the my understanding is, and if I've got this wrong, please correct me, the First Nations Climate Initiative Group, the International Advisory Committee, they don't necessarily have the same politics as some of the local communities would. One of the things that we've run into a lot of is the, um, you know, the heritage chiefs versus the elected chiefs in some of these organizations, right? That can be really complicated for some of the groups because sometimes the elected council will say, yeah, we're all good. And then you have these heritage uh, family chiefs that are saying, no, it's not. And so there becomes an internal power struggle locally in some of these cases that's not represented in this. But what I hear here though is Canada is known for an awful lot of bureaucracy and red tape. Does an agreement like this and a promotion like this allow some space to maybe say, we could actually get things moving. If we could have an overarching standard procedure, even, um, even just a widely accepted agreement um, of the benefits of it, one community saying, well, we did, we did this, we supported this, and this is what we, our world looks like today. Take that to community B. Does that accelerate potentially be the benefit for the rest of Canadians or those product owners that are, are, are looking to deliver LNG to the world? Yeah, I think an interesting question in the US and Canada is really if project developers in natural resources are delivering projects that have indigenous consent and ownership, and also meet sort of environmental criteria like net zero and biodiversity, should those projects get a faster track for permitting, right? That by doing that front end work, you eliminate the red tape. That is a direction that policy is moving in both countries. It's still not set in stone because you, you do have environmental groups, and as you mentioned, some elements in this community that find that suspicious, right? Anything that has fast tracking, they don't like. Maybe if you look at history of it, there's probably a good reason for that. But I would say there's momentum in that direction, and that's the trade-off saying we're not going to sacrifice the standards, but we are going to, you know, go faster and with predictable timelines on projects that have social and environmental support, social in many cases being local communities, including Indigenous, and environmental meaning, you know, net zero carbon emissions, biodiversity protections, tailings management for mining, you know, methane emissions management for natural gas. The more you can do at the front end, then the faster the property will be. So that that's the theory that's quite popular in Ottawa and Washington these days. So it does now. I'm not asking for a political opinion, so answer this as appropriate for you. Um, now, what we have here is, okay, so if we get green lights from, you know, the province, you get green lights from the communities that are related to the land um, of the project, whether it's pulling out of the ground or pipelines or anything related like that, and if you get green lights and the standard is here, that pressure on the federal government um, could be quite immense. We have a current government in Canada that has been even more clear lately that they have no desire to expand LNG for places like Germany. They have no desire to, in fact, the environment minister, uh, the energy minister just came out and said um, how he wants like no oil and gas at all. I mean, this this could could politically be a very difficult crossroad if everybody's green lights it and then all of a sudden the political party doesn't fit with their ideals and um, which could be good, could be bad, I suppose, but it's really going to call people. I think it's really going to call some people to own up, to make a decision of which way they're going to go here. Yeah. I'll happily give you my political opinion, just my opinion, not FNCI in any way. Um, I think my my opinion is that, um, I agree with some of what you're saying. I I think the Liberal Party in Ottawa is a little bit more divided on LNG than maybe they suggest publicly. But but where I will agree with you is to say that what I've told them and I tell everybody is that if the current government put the same emphasis on LNG that they put on critical minerals and battery manufacturing, we'd be further along in LNG. Yeah. And what that means, they've written $13 billion checks to Volkswagen for tax breaks for electric vehicle manufacturing. Again, I grew up in Ontario, so I'm all for the Rust Belt and the Golden Horseshoe yep. and the auto community, those are my people. But, you know, arguably, you know, they've done Western-oriented projects like hydrogen and CCS that have got some real money behind them. LNG, because it's fossil fuel question, it's, it's just more politically challenging for them. But I think if you look at finance or NRCAM, they are trying to do some things and they put some markers down. I don't think the East Coast gas was a viable person anyway. The competition there was not lining up in our favor. Too many infrastructure hurdles to get there. But the West Coast gas, I think, the question really comes down to 
the Liberals and the BC government say that if you can do net zero and you have, you know, you're replacing coal in Asia and you have Indigenous partnership, then we will support it. What that support means, how it happens, how firm it is, what what we want to know. Um, yeah. And and I think that's where maybe there are there's some fair criticism there. Um, I think personally, as these projects secure their Indigenous partners and as they secure customers, that moves from a theoretical position for Ottawa to answer to a real position. Say, okay, we have a customer. We're moving to FID, but we need a permit. So really honing in those customers and saying, okay, what are they looking for for price? How much does our geopolitical advantage matter? Does that help us or hurt us in China, for example? Um, how can we support Japan and Korea trying to decarbonize their industrial sector or their electric power generation sector? How can we work with the U.S. on a joint LNG strategy? I feel like those are the kind of things that would really get the Liberals in Ottawa to, to really move on this. You know, in fairness, they're doing some things, but perhaps not as much they've done in other areas like hydrogen and electric vehicles and mining. Mm-hmm. It, yeah, it, I, I think that... Um it's going to make a lot of them look in the mirror and go, oh, crap, they pulled it off. Now what do I do? And I think that's a great place to put a politician into making a decision. I, I think that's true, but I think some would also be happy. I think Mr. Wilkinson, who I know fairly well from BC, I think he's been a, a good advocate, but he's working with a cabinet political system that I, that does contain yeah. some of the perspective you're describing as well. Well, that's just it, right? And I've always wondered inside the party, my own period, uh, personal curiosity is that you've got Gilboa out saying these wildly inflammatory things and there must be so many people inside that that cabinet that are rolling their eyes going he said what right like I mean they're still human beings with different opinions whether allowed to share it or not publicly I suppose but well you know let's let's go one level higher to the PMO right I have no insight this directly just as an observer it seems to me that the cabinet is structured in a way that you're going to have natural differences between something like the environment ministry and the natural resources ministry and the finance ministry the question right. is, how does that all come together into a decision, right, that has to be at the prime ministerial level? And again, I think as long as there's no market pressure, to your point, saying, hey, we have a deal ready to go, that decision can be deferred. When LNG Canada was ready to go, they supported it. When Trans Mountain needed to buy her, they bought it. So we can't say they've across the board, they've done nothing. But there could be more, perhaps, on the LNG sector as these Indigenous back deals, you know, get momentum and credibility, as you suggest. RJ, you talked about Canada-US and sort of getting a little bit more on the same page of all this. Does this change the conversations down the road? And I realize they're not necessarily LNG lines, but use them at least as an example. But Keystone XL and Line 5, both of those, um, you know, have faced all kinds of resistance. um, And but do things like proper LNG support take examples like that and simplify them? Um, There's a to some extent, because I think the LNG case also involves pipeline construction. And we know that things mm-hmm. like pipelines and transmission lines that involve linear infrastructure affect more communities, more indigenous communities, more towns, villages, everything, agriculture, and, and therefore could be more politically contentious. Um, but I would say that the environmental hurdles around gas, as formidable as they are, are not as heavy as they were for oil sands in the context of those two projects both of which ran through territories that had local opposition, Nebraska with Keystone, and obviously Michigan with Line 5. Doesn't mean everybody in Nebraska and Michigan didn't like those projects, but there was enough critical mass of opposition, including with governors and senators and people like that, to cause problems. Now, I will note Line 5 is still running as of today, but mm-hmm. certainly it's not a position that Enbridge would want to be with these various court challenges. Um, and it does show that there's still a strong kind of anti-oil sands movement in the U.S., and the current current administration, um, while they're probably not huge fans of the oil sands from a climate perspective, they, they do want to get reelected and they recognize that a shutdown of line five, you know, at a time of you know, still high oil prices and relatively low square capacity global globally, a war in Russia, Ukraine, OPEC fighting with each other, it mm-hmm. probably wouldn't be a great time to shut that pipeline down. So I'd be surprised if that ultimately happens, but I understand that's a you know another example of the kind of permitting risk that the pipeline projects were also in the face in the U.S. Bringing gas from Canada to the U.S. would would have some of the same challenges, but maybe not the same level as the oil sands um, have faced. So RJ is uh, working as an advisor to First Nations Climate Initiative International Advisory Committee. My understanding is that the the FNCI has come out and said we will support natural gas and the growth of natural gas in a uh, net zero 
growth responsible way. Is that, am I hearing that right? I mean, cause that to me sounds like great news. Yeah, I, th- I think so. And I, I think that's, what's interesting for me about being involved at FNCI um, because again, it's an interesting model. And I think that no one else in the world is doing it that, you know, if you have indigenous groups saying that these are traditional lands, these are treaty rights, we will support the gas development with equal ownership and with, you know, consent. You know, that, that's really feel does, I agree with that, does feel like a win-win model. And, and yes, as I understand it, that is the position of the FNCI, although again, I'm an independent advisor to them, but that does seem to be the position. My job is to say, okay, if that's your position, where's the market, right? Mm-hmm. And, and let's be real, what are the real, what are the barriers and how can you overcome them? And then what are the opportunities what I see is that a lot of reports are written about LNG in Canada that are either kind of written by industry saying how great it is or written by environmentalists saying how destructive it is. We're trying to go down the middle and say, you know, this is not a slam dunk. There's opportunities and there's risks. How do we maximize opportunities? How do we minimize the risks? And then where, where does that leave you? That's the approach I'm trying to take with my group. And I think that'll be good, you know, help FNCI leadership kind of crystallize their strategy for bringing this product to market. And, and as you suggest, you know, convincing regulators and policymakers to be on board. Workability is a big word, isn't it? It is. And in fact, uh, we've kind of identified 10 areas that uh, you kind of need to have in place, sort of 10 ducks to get in the road to have an LNG project succeed, starting with those kind of big questions on global gas demand and ending with, you know, your social, with your regulatory permits at the other end. There's a lot of steps in between getting to net zero, building up a workforce, you know, fiscal competitiveness, indigenous partnerships, um, elect- green electricity, which is a big issue in BC. So you need to have all 10 and some mm-hmm. are very low hanging fruit and others will take a lot more work, but absolutely I think workability is a good way to look at it. Can you imagine RJ, what it'd be like if all industry in the world had an end of life solution? I mean, I use the uh, sort of the net zero as the end of life solution in this particular product, but all these products in our life, if we had an end of life plan for them, can you imagine how great this world would be? <laughs> well, not all products have the impact that energy has, right? So energy is, you know, <laughs> if we look at global emissions and energy security, it, you know, there's a geopolitics energy's right in the middle of it in a way that most products are not. Well, what's interesting what you said is I give you a slightly different reaction. Um, when you say end of life for natural gas, yes, I would say net zero is a stage in that journey. But the many people, including I think the FNCI, not to speak for them, but just looking at their public records, I think they they see a hydrogen and ammonia pathway and methanol as sort of even, even further down the road, right? And renewable natural gas, synthetic natural gas. So I, you know, my my PhD is in international economics and politics, so I won't go too far down the engineering road, but it's pretty clear if you listen to LNG 2023 guys and the clients I've worked with over the years that more and more there's talk about natural gas value chains that today consist of sort of unabated methane, right? Just clean old natural gas uh, and may end in a, you know, blue ammonia or synthetic natural gas product that's much less carbon intensive that, you know, has all kinds of other environmental benefits, but essentially uses some of the same raw resource and same infrastructure and shipping and commercial relationships. That might extend your end of life from, say, 2035, 2040, when the demand for conventional, unabated natural gas starts to peak and decline in these climate scenarios. It might extend another 50 or 100 years beyond that. Mm-hmm. So that's where the government research and development, our universities, our scientists, you know, our, our leading corporations, uh, think tanks can really be helpful, I think, figuring those questions out. And, and again, I, I was very impressed last week's conference that there was a lot of emphasis on the long-term value chain for decarbonized natural gas in its various chemical forms as a way to extend that end of life. I've always imagined scenarios (laughs) like this as a bit of a tug of war, RJ, like there's a rope and there's two sides pulling on it. What I hear from what you're saying to me here is that it is possible that there's a little less tugging on the rope and maybe a little bit, you know, a little bit less stress in the situation. Contentious, of course, because everyone has their opinions and agendas, but at the same time, it feels maybe for the first time that we're having positive conversations about these things in a long time? I think the Canadian gas developers, including my client at FNCI and many others, you know, would be thrilled if our domestic ducks were in a row and we were competing globally. No problem. We do that all the time. Wheat, hogs, soybeans, you know, steel, a lot of areas, it's not a new game for us. Oil sands. Um, The question is, how do you get into the game? 
right? And, and then it becomes a question of, you know, can you deliver gas? Maybe some of these countries like Japan and Korea that have made very strong kind of Canada climate-like targets might pay not a huge premium, but some premium for a resource that's both clean and socially responsible and secure. That's a path to explore. Maybe they'll share their carbon credits with us, things like that. When it comes to countries like India or maybe Indonesia, Vietnam, it's going to have to be at a certain price level that competes with coal almost, and there won't be the same kind of environmental benefits. So maybe that's a market that the Russians or the Qataris or someone else will take. We look for like-minded governments and customers. I think you can find them in Japan, Korea, Singapore, Taiwan in particular. They would say, yeah, what you're doing in Canada makes sense to us. Now, can, can you actually deliver it? Count this in. And having indigenous partnerships removes one of the big doubts. We still have some work to do on the decarbonization climate side, how to get to net zero by 2030. But, you know, there's some policies that will reinforce that. There's emerging technology that will reinforce that. The big question mark they probably has is, is there enough, you know, zero carbon, low carbon electricity to support the climate goals that you have for your liquefaction process? But yes, I think there's left tugging on the rope. There's more consensus. And again, it comes down to what the customers are looking for. Uh, it's a beautiful conversation. I think it's very insightful. Um, RJ, thank you very much for um, giving us that insight. It's a much bigger look. And just the notion, like you said, if we could have our ducks in a row in Canada, imagine where it could go. And um, it's going to put some pressure on people to make some decisions, which is great. I think this is good because I think we've been a bit of a stalemate of complaining for so long, whether you're on this side or that side. And um, I think everyone can agree that that's enough of the complaining. Let's actually get some stuff. And and I always ask here on the shift, RJ, I said, okay, so what are you going to do about it? And and this sounds like um, the FNCI is just one group that they're trying to do something about it. I think yeah, that's cool. And, and look, I, th I think the people have asked me, I've been this for 20 years in British Columbia, and people say, is the LNG window open or closed? Well, it's open right now. And, you know, there's a bunch of U.S. and uh, Qatari supply coming on in the next couple of years. After that, there's going to be a lot more contracts expiring. Demand is still growing. That's the window for us, right? So the projects that we're talking about now that would come online in 27, 28, 29, that's where the market's going to be, right? It's going to take that long to build some of this stuff. So this is a very live conversation. I think we'll know within two years whether or not we'll be part of it or not. Thanks for your time being here. Appreciate it. Pleasure, Shane. Thank you. This is The Shift Podcast. Our flashback Friday to kickstart all of this takes us back to the year 1992. Well, why? Because this week, Colt Pratis joined us here on The Shift, friend of a friend who we've made friends with. And he is in the touring production of Aladdin. It's in Calgary this weekend, Vancouver next weekend. And then it goes down to the States and all those things. It's a big, long tour. And it got us thinking, what year was the Aladdin movie out? Because in the podcast from last night, you can hear the storylines of the characters from the original Aladdin story and how it was a little bit different from the movie. Well, when did this great movie come out? 1992. Genie, I wish for you to make me a prince. He has the land. We're never gonna get a hold of that land! Do you trust me? Don't you dare close your eyes. Hold your breath. Now, I forgot all about Gilbert and the darn bird, actually. Oh, that's honestly the most underrated part of Aladdin is Gilbert yeah. Godfrey what an actor oh I love him so much in this movie he's perfectly cast I love it yeah. oh perfectly cast the film follows yeah. um uh, Aladdin an Arabian street urchin who finds a magic lamp containing a genie with the genie's help Aladdin disguises himself as a wealthy prince and tries to impress the sultan in order to win the heart of his free-spirited daughter princess jasmine as the Sultan's evil vizier Jafar plots to steal the magic lamp for his own uses. The director is asked Eric Goldberg, Genie's supervising animator, to animate the character over one of William's old stand-up comedy routines to pitch the idea to the actor. He's kind of show him a ex working example of how it goes. The resulting test, where William's stand-up about schizophrenia was translated into Genie, Growing another head to argue with himself made Williams laugh his ass off, quote, and con to convince him to sign on for the movie and the role. He was so good on set, he was almost too good. 
once again, if there are any little children here tonight, we've used these words in a sentence. And I have to say, one of the great thrills of my life was actually watching Robin Williams laugh at my animation. I mean, doesn't get any better than that. <laughs> That's... What we didn't expect was how much Robin was going to give us. Come on, kid. See? Gotta get the snakes, eh? Once Robin got in front of the mic, of course, all the celebrity impressions came out. You need more power, Jim. Don't be afraid. You had it all along. I never did it. I am not at fault. The most fun I had recording was a scene where Aladdin is standing outside of Jasmine's balcony, and he's got the genie as a bee buzzing in his ear telling him what to say. <clears throat> uh, Princess Jasmine, you're very... Uh, very... Splendid, wonderful, magnificent, glorious, punctual. 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 Sorry. Uh, beautiful. Nice recovery. And I recorded that with Robin Williams, and he was so funny. He was, because he would morph into all these different things, telling me what to do. And I tried so hard not to laugh, but I'm sure I ruined a couple of takes just from the laughter coming out. All right, how do I look? Like a vampire on a day pass. <laughs> Uh, I can't imagine them. Like, it'd be so hard to get stuff done when he was around. Oh, so much impossible. fun. Right? Impossible. I'm watching him on some of the daytime talk shows. Just, you know, he was off the charts. And what a cool, what a cool entertainer. Robin Williams' appearance in Aladdin marks the beginning of a transition in animation to use celebrity voice actors rather than specifically trained voice actors in animated films. This is great marketing, right? To put a famous person mm -hmm. in the movie. Uh, he was also a very good singer, but he did not think so himself. Mr. Lancer, have we got two or three? A whole generation is going to grow up thinking he was a singer. I think not. I think there's still people going, no, man, you got no rhythm. Because it, they're, but they're like Ethel Merman songs, so that's why you can belt them out. So they're not, they're just like old time show business, like 40s musical stuff. Mwahaha! Aladdin garnered two Academy Awards as well as other accolades for its soundtrack, which had the first and only number one for a Disney feature to earn a Grammy Award for Song of the Year for the film's A Whole New World. Um, that is one of the best movies, I think, of all time. It's definitely one of Disney's best productions. It is Disney's, I would say, aside from Lion King, strongest musicals uh i was in a production of aladdin uh like in probably grade nine or so and it was amazing it was a blast the songs are so well written and there's this dynamic range of these really dramatic ballads and then these crazy over-the-top show tunes like robin says in that clip that uh, that just give it so much depth as a as a performance, and it's why it's done so well in a film and on stage. And it is it is a very very special product that I'm excited to show my children someday. Like it's definitely top tier list of must show films. Do you remember when we we were chatting about you know movies and and perception of movies and just how you know it's not a lot of movie. We talked about theaters and how people are. In today's world, the, the new threshold we're, we're observing seems to be that people are going into theaters for the big ones because paying a premium for a mediocre movie just doesn't seem to be very appetizing or palatable yep. for people today. I think that's fair. This movie, this movie gave you all things just like a tsunami of entertainment, amazing storyline, great love story. And but it was just this constant barrage of uh, the genie. Every scene, it was like whoa. And then when it was the bird, which was sort of the antithesis scenes, right? When the genie wasn't in it, the bird was in it. And then Gilbert Gottfried was doing his thing, and it was just this nonstop wave of entertainment that came for the whole movie. And I think that's one of the coolest things about it. It's one of the reasons why I don't think it's ever really going to age, and it's also one of the reasons why that live action remake is an abomination because it's everything that this movie the original is not you yeah. know it's everything wrong that's the the movie well, the live action movie yes with will smith as the genie just now if you want to check out the uh, podcast that we did with colt prattis he plays kasim which is um one of the brothers 
in the uh, in the original script before it became this movie, they adapted it a little bit and they went back to the old script, which is cool. It's touring around. They've done a great job with it. We thoroughly enjoyed the conversation. It's on the podcast from last night this week. When a what happens when friends meet for the first time, I think is the title, something along those lines. And just search Shane Hewitt when you go to Spotify or Apple Music and you'll find it. And um, and it's great. And give it a listen. You can learn about the characters and the depth of the characters and the love story from that conversation from Colt for the touring show, too. Pretty cool stuff. All right. It is Flashback Friday. And um, <laughs> it is Flashback Friday here on The Shift. And we are flashing back to 1992. We'll get to music in a second. Um, Roberta Bondar yeah. became the first uh, Canada's first female astronaut and first neurologist to go to space. That's what else happened in 1992. One of the first six members of the Canadian Astronaut Corps selected in 1983. Bondar began astronaut training in 84. In 92, she was designated payload specialist for the first international microgravity lab mission. Bondar flew on the NASA Spatial Discovery during the mission STS-42. And she performed over 40 experiments in the space lab. Her work studying the effects of low-gravity situations on the human body allowed NASA to prepare astronauts for long stays at the space station. There's no question that seeing the reality of Earth in space can be a change agent. The, the, it is, it is, I, I've been trying so hard to try to get people to understand what it's like. And the, the closest thing I can come to is if, if you take a well-known figure such as Queen Elizabeth, and if she walked in the room and made eye contact with you, it would be it would be like enormous because this is a person that's been two dimensional on a screen or in a in a magazine or something, and then suddenly they become three dimensional. Not just because they've got depth to their physical self, but because they have made eye can, eye contact with you, and it's that reality of the moment. You see them blink in your eyes; they're they're looking right at you, and that is what it was like seeing the Earth from space. It was the reality moment that, yes, in science, I live in a planet. Sure, you know, I drew pictures of the planet when I was a kid and everything. I learned about all the planets in the solar system. But it's actually being there in the moment and actually seeing it, that it is a planet, and seeing the black of space with stars don't, that don't twinkle, that is what it is. That is the cement. That's a storyline from a Canadian who did amazing things in space and a Canadian um, that tells the story about what so many people say. These scientists go to space and they look at Earth and they come back humbled by the humanity and connection of it all. I think this is one of those beautiful things about these astronauts and when they go. Flashback Friday here. It's the shift. It was a good time for TV in the early 90s. Two heavy hitters shared the same time slot. Tuesday, the girls joined DJ on a date. I don't want to hear a peep out of you two until the movie's over. Peep. Full house. DJ, what's up? Then Tim motorizes the tree. Are you sure you connected the spur gear to the final drive? You know who you're talking to? Yes, I do, Tim. Home Improvement Tuesday, all starting at 8, 7 Central. Battling it out, man. Full House was a big hit with the audience. One of the producers, Dennis Rinsler, called the show the Brady Bunch of the 90s. For actor Dave Coulier, the show represented a G-rated dysfunctional family. The good show. Dave Coulier is funny. Um, the same went for Home Improvement, despite not being favorite with critics. It was one of the most watched sitcoms in the U.S. during the 90s as well. I interviewed Dave Coulier before, and just he's just a nice guy. That was cool. That was a fun experience for that one. Flashback Friday here. It's The Shift. 1992. It's fun to look backwards in time. It gives us some perspective on where we are today and how far we've come. Car commercials. Ryan loves car commercials. Old bad ones. Ford Taurus, top-selling car of 1992. How do you think we've improved the award-winning Taurus? Oh, it's... it's... They gotta like it. Mm -hmm, baby. Anything more? I want a lot. With over 250 improvements, we've accentuated the positive. Let me see that again. Let me let me look at that. The 1992 Ford Taurus, the result of positive thinking. Positively. Yeah, yeah. Positively a whale was that car. It was a big, <laughs> fat car. Big. I also love at the end of that commercial, it's like, positively. And the guy goes, positively. And then the girl waits. She's like, yeah, yeah. And that's how the commercial ends. Weird. Well, so I, that to me tells me there was some research about some negative people think of the car negatively. And so they're like, we're just going to tell people it's positive. And then they'll have a positive memory of it. Mm. 
No, it so, worked. Well, it worked. The second generation of Taurus sold just as well as the first, becoming the best-selling car in the United States. The title would retain for as long as the generation was sold. When production ended in 1995, 1.4 million second-generation Tauruses had been sold. The coolest one, though, was that big, fat booty wagon. With the wagon and the wood paneling? That Hell was so yeah. good. Yeah, that was that's nice. a, you don't see those anymore. <laughs> well, no, you don't, but that's probably because they were a Ford Taurus for not <laughs> many reasons. Other than that, okay, um, 1992 in music, we've been playing some songs. We will continue to play some songs from that. There was some really great music in 1992 that was super fun. And this one, I remember I was doing sound for my friends in their band, um, and they did this song. Um, I, oh, it's a clean version of it? Come on. Uh, 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 rolls the dice. We're going to just let that run for a second just to make sure that we, uh, you know, boop. <laughs> Talking over the music. Sort of music that I don't understand. Ugly Kid Joe, Everything About You. Now, this was an iconic song in 1992. It was about number 60. Uh, if you graduated from Father Mercury High School in 1992 in Fort McMurray, um, that just gave you like... Mega flashback memories. My goodness. Um, okay, I'm assuming you've never heard that one, Ryan, as a millennial? No, no, absolutely not. No clue. Um, one of the best songs ever made was um, was released in this uh, in this year, 1992. Oh. Arrested Development. Um, I believe earlier you played Mr. Wendell. Jono, yeah. Mr. Wendell was another one. One of the best groups ever. One of the uh, best songs ever. It's kind of a rip, sampled rip, but it's amazing. 1992 was good for music, man. Yeah, I'm just looking through the list right now. It's very it's nice, uh, right? Yeah, it's like that weird crossover with the 80s and kind of the first little teases of what the late 90s would sound like. Yeah. Um, this one. Yeah. See, it was a good, you, uh, good year for rock and roll and metal music. It was a great year. Destruction by Megadeth, Demolition Hammer, great year. Right. Um, as well. Oh, gotta type in more. One second, sorry. Um, there it is. There was all kinds of weird songs. This was from an album that was called Hormonally Yours. I'm not joking. That was the name of the album. Hormonally yours? Mm-hmm. That's, uh, that's really funny. Isn't that funny? Oh, there was um, a big uh, one-hit wonder this year. Which one's that? Mac Daddy. Sir Mix-A-Lot. Oh, Baby yeah, that's got back. <laughs> that was 92. Working on something here. Yep, yep. Shane's furiously typing. Oh, yeah. Yeah, furiously. Um, I don't have a system where I can um, just easily like, go and um, do that. You know um, who did that song, by the way? I like big butts and I cannot lie. You know this version? No. <laughs> you don't know who sang that one? No. This guy. Oh, no. Vanilla. Vanilla. That was Vanilla Ice's version of I Like Big Butts. Um, yeah. Dude. Right? You know what else charted in um, 1992? This charted in 92? Number 39. Do we know why it charted in 92? I think it was the Mike Myers movie. (gasps) Wayne's World. I think you're right. I don't know. Can you take a look and see um, when Wayne's World came out? Wayne's World came out. 
February 14th, 1992. So there we go. Um, if you, what's that? Oh, I said there you go. Uh, Bobby Brown was making music with "Humping Around." We also had Joe Public, "Live and Learn." That was a good song. I gotta do that one. The hook is great. You kind of hear the style, eh? Like, it was kind of all the same. Bass, yeah. That was such a good song. Um, You know this one, too. Um, (sighs) Remember when I found out that these guys were from Ireland. Happened live on the ship, and I didn't believe it. I only found that out, like, a year ago. Yeah, well, they're actually from Boston. Um, they're Irish, but they're not from. Yeah, Ireland. Yeah. Um, then there's of course some of our favorites, like this one. Like, what a great year in music, man! You cannot tell me this was not an amazing year. One of my favorite songs of all time. We'll wrap up with this one and let us get us out. Um, it's got that typical sample that was used so many times by so many different songs, but it's fantastic. And uh, 1992, Flashback Friday. I hope it was a great year for you. PM Dawn will wrap us up here. It's The Shift. I'm Shane Hewitt. This is the Shift Podcast. Are you? Are you? Are you? Okay. 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 Are you okay with? 877-399-9898. That is our phone number for you to let us know your thoughts about these stories that just might make you ponder. Are you okay with? Rabbits. I like the bunnies. Yeah, bunnies are adorable. You know, I would never want one as a pet, but they're adorable. You know, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. very adorable. Um, they they poop a lot. Yeah, there's a lot of that, and uh, apparently they they will bite you like quite often. Like, a, like even if they're well trained, like they're more nippy than a chihuahua. Really, this yeah. I did not know. All right. Yeah. Um, good to know. I, these are, I just remember I had a roommate who had bunnies and we used to find poop pellets between the couch cushions. That was it. That's, well, yeah, I hope you weren't. It's weird, right? Nope, not going to make that joke. Yep, that's awful. That's disgusting. We used to have lots of bunnies around our place and uh, that was all right. Bunnies around was nice because, you know, you'd see them, they're running around. That's cute in the wintertime, but they can be too much sometimes. A town in our favorite place is uh, very much in need of a skilled hunter right now, like Elmer Fudd. quiet I'm hunting rabbits Kill the rabbit Kill the rabbit Kill the rabbit Kill the rabbit Killed a wabbit. Uh, Florida's latest invasive species are lionhead rabbits. Lots of species seem to infest or infest, uh, invest, infest. Well done. Um, In in Florida, for say, I don't know, I'm confused. Uh, The bunnies, (laughs) which sport an impressive flowing mane around their heads, are on the loose thanks to one person. So the invasion actually started after a breeder illegally let the rabbits loose and then moved, dang, between 60 and 100 lionhead rabbits roamed the yards of a suburban Fort Lauderdale community. That's a ton of them right there. Look at that shot. Oh, my gosh. The lion heads have thick fur and a fearless nature that make them unsuited for life outside in Florida. Meanwhile, they're not supposed to be in the heat because they could have a heat stroke when the temperatures get above 85. And there's predators all around that can kill them. And we've found dead rabbits all over the place, you know. I've seen several dead rabbits. So they need to be rescued and rehomed. Oh, man, that's sad to hear. 
Well, people in the neighborhood are trying to raise the money needed to rescue the rabbits and then get them into homes. Get this, though, it would cost them $20,000 to $40,000. Those are some expensive bunnies. Bark, bark. Um, <laughs> okay. That's weird. $40,000. Yeah. That news comes from Fort Jackson. If we are going to um, talk about the Sunshine State being overrun by rabbits, we should probably do this. What does it mean to be from Florida? Florida. Straight drip. Um, now, the ideal outcome with the rabbits is not to have any bunnies die, which I'm not quite sure I agree with. I think that uh, natural selection is a thing. And also, if they're pests and they're everywhere and it's somebody's fault for doing it, um, you know, sometimes it has to happen. Yeah. You can't See, save I, all the rabbits, and yeah. if they're wild, they're not going to want to be around people anyway. Yeah, yeah, they're in a tough situation here. And I'm curious what the most expensive part of the $40,000 to rescue them is, because I feel like you could just honestly drive around with like a like a digger and pick a, them all up carrot. and scoop them. Or yeah, like, yeah, get like, you know, a big shovel and have a carrot tied to one end of it and put them all in the shovel, and then you put them all in the cage. A digger. Okay. Yeah, like, um, like an excavator. Like the little tractors, so, you know, they got the big shovels. So the lionhead rabbit originated in France and Belgium. Yeah, they're adorable. So if none of the bunnies are going to die and they're going to be rehomed, either you're deferring the problem to somewhere else and they're going to have, you know, an infestation there, or they're going to become pets, which I don't think that's a good thing for wild rabbits, or they're going to be soup. Or they're gonna, yeah, so. <laughs> or or gator meat, but then that could mean big evil Ooh. gators because they have extra food, and we don't want that either. Right. See, um, according to the Associated Press, the vote on the bunnies came after some residents complained the lionheads dig holes, chew outdoor wiring, and leave droppings on sidewalks and driveways. Not to mention in between the couch cushions of my old roommate's couch. City com- uh, commissioners also feared the rabbits could spread into neighboring communities and cities and become a traffic hazard if they ventured onto major city streets. Physics, friends. They're not that, that much of a traffic hazard. Um, <laughs> the Florida Fish and Wildlife Conservation Commission, which often culls invasive animals, has told the city it will not intercede. The rabbits pose no immediate threat to wildlife. Lunch. Mm. All right. I've never had a rabbit. Uh, I don't think I have either. These mm. ones are particularly cute, though. Gotta say. Yeah, no, like I wouldn't want to eat one of these. No, no. But like if somebody said, hey, I made rabbit soup, I would probably try it. Okay. Never, you wouldn't yeah. want to eat one of these things. But really, if you saw the rabbit as a cute little bunny before you ate it, would you eat any kind of rabbit if you saw it beforehand? No, and I guess that goes for like any kind of food, really. Cause well, if you saw a cute, cute fuzzy cow... Yeah. And you're like, yeah. oh, here's Steve the cow. And you're like, perfect, steak. Like, you wouldn't do that. You'd be like, I'm taking Steve home now. Right? So I think that that's one of those things that if you yeah. see the animal ever, that's why we yeah. don't see the animals beforehand, except lobsters maybe. That's legit. Which are okay. the most delicious. <laughs> <laughs> it's The Shift. I'm Shane Hewitt. Let's start this next story completely out of context. Here we go on about it. Dumbbird on ten thousand on and ten thousand, two thousand. I don't know three. I better dumbbird on three, four thousand. I better dumbbird on five thousand. I better dumbbird on Bid down, bid down, bid down. That's all they keep saying. It's hard to do. It's a real skill. Are you okay with auctions? Or if we were going to be say it properly for our European friends, auctions? auctions uh i've never i've watched a million tv shows about auctions whether it's a million antiques road show yeah i've counted it's exactly at a million wow um yeah uh oh sorry is my mic doing a thing right now no i just thought you had more of a story to tell other than i've watched oh yeah no so yeah i watched a lot of history (laughs) channel and i watched a lot of history channel right so i watched like storage wars and all those all those classic ones and those auctions were pretty sweet, uh, but uh, you know I, I've never been to one, but I would, especially like car auction would be cool. Hmm, they're very exciting in person. I can tell you, I love auctions. They're a great place to uh, get that old circular economy going, where people can get an opportunity to get good things for a decent price. I think that's kind of fun. Estate auctions are the best. Like if you need a bed, 
Trust me, go to an estate auction. It's amazing. I mean, somebody might have yeah. died in it, but it's a probably yeah. a good bed. Risky. You don't know that. It's like the bunny. You don't know what the bunny looks like. You don't need to know. Just is it comfortable? True. That's all that matters. You don't need some story behind it. Okay. Um, Ryan actually loved that auctioneer particularly so much. He decided to remix it. Ten thousand on and ten thousand, two thousand, and then three. I'm at a number of three, four thousand, I'm at a number of five thousand, I'm at a number of thirty five hundred, four thousand, five, five, fifty five hundred, six thousand, five. Got a good flow to it. That's pretty good. I like that. Uh, Canadian Heritage Moment is going up for auction if you want to buy it. Going to need some money, though. Wayne Gretzky's game-used stick from the Edmonton Oilers Stanley Cup clinching victory over the Boston Bruins in 1988 will be offered through Sotheby's, sealed from now till July 25th. It could fetch up to $700,000 at auction. Probably going to go for more. The 1988 title was Wayne Gretzky's fourth Stanley Cup and earned his second Conn Smythe Trophy as playoff MVP with 43 points through 19 postseason games. Sotheby's got a hold of the stick, which is also dated by Gretzky himself from a private collector who opted to sell it. The company had previously sold a Gretzky stick from his final NHL game for $140,000 in 2022. Now, this has some different uh, meaning to it. Wonder if it'd be an Oilers fan. Um, it'll be on display at Sotheby's New York from today until July 24th. If you want to see it, uh, Ryan, would you pay seven? You like to spend money on sneakers. Would you spend seven hundred thousand dollars on a hockey stick? Uh no. I would spend. I, I there are there's no piece of of sports memorabilia that I would probably drop that kind of money on unless it was like a game worn Michael Jordan shoe, maybe. Uh, but, uh, if I had to pick because I don't know, there's just a, well, there's a personal taste thing and then there's the legacy thing. Um, but if it was like Wayne Gretzky's Jersey that he wore in a certain game with a certain outcome that was autographed and all that, I would be more likely to drop the $700,000 on that than the stick. I don't know the stick. Maybe it's just because I've never played hockey, right? I just watched it, so I don't have the same connection to the hockey stick that most Canadians have. They um, they didn't go through sticks as fast as they do today, so it's not like they're using ten sticks a game. So that matters. And if you did play hockey or maybe road hockey, you'll be happy to hear that it is a Titan TPM twenty twenty, which was the hockey stick in the eighties. It was white with red paint, said Titan on it. I had one. It's like if you oh. show up with a Jofa helmet and a Titan hockey stick, you are the coolest guy at Beer League. I do love the Jofa helmets. Those are the, the, the that is a true bucket in the, the, the best way. Is the stick autographed? It says, I think, to Nick, best wishes, Wayne Gretzky, May 26, 1988. On yep. it. You can see it right there in the photo. Yep. Um, Wayne Gretzky stamped on the stick. Um, you can actually, there's photos of him playing with the stick and it's got some writing on it. So you can see it's actually the stick. And there are photos from that hockey game with the same markings on the stick to prove that the damage on the stick is exactly the same stick, which by the way, Ryan is how people do, uh, uh, collector's items. Not just by the way, here's a hundred sneakers, buy a pair. Yeah. Yes. I, I'm, I'm aware of the work that goes into these, uh, these uh legacy uh pieces yes mm. i'm aware yes don't worry all right um oh, we got lots of time are you okay with selfies mm. i like ussies way better i know yeah you've been on the ussie i've uh, been on the ussie trend you know getting the group which i would say you see a lot more of those even I've, a lot of post calgary stampede uh, people upload all their pictures and it's rare that you get the you know just the here's me at the calgary stampede anymore it's here's me with a selfie with six other people in the background and yeah. uh if that's the evolution of the selfie into that i think that's fantastic i think that's great I like that because uh, uh i feel really weird taking a selfie and posting it online i only take selfies to like send to laura like look i'm at this place today or I'm doing this kind of thing. I don't share it to post it online anywhere. Look at my sneakers I bought. I um, don't see. No, I pull out the good lenses and the good camera for that. No selfie. Oh, mode. goodness. Hire a photographer. My God. Mm -hmm. um, 
so for me, yeah, I mean, selfies to friends, selfie to family, what are you up to? Me and the dog, that's kind of thing. I mean, that to me is what I think a selfie is good for. I know some people yeah. really like to do the selfies in places and make themselves look good. I don't really find that to be a thing. Um, I do probably lots of selfies while I'm driving, and I know that that sounds incredibly illegal, but I have a mount on my phone and uh, just an auto command on it to flip the camera and take the picture while driving. So I'm just in the frame. So I'm not doing it by like taking pictures, but if someone's like, where are you? And I'll be like, boom, send. And I do like the, Hey, Apple name command that I'm not saying right now. So my phone doesn't do something weird. Uh, Send a picture to Ryan or something, right? Send a selfie to Ryan. Yeah. Which is handy. Um, Selfies are becoming more and more controversial these days because, you know, people fall off cliffs trying to take them. Concerts, on the other hand, has been the latest sticking point for the selfie. Popular country singer Miranda Lambert offended several fans at her Las Vegas show on Sunday when she paused her set to scold a group of women for taking a selfie. I'm going to stop right here for a sec, Danny. I'm sorry. These girls are worried about the selfie and not listening to the song. It's pissing me off a little bit. Um, the scolding from Lambert has inspired a fierce debate about whether concert attendees should take selfies during a performance. Some in Lambert's camp have argued that the artist is owed respect and attention during her show. Others include the women who took the selfie said folks should be able to take photos as they please, especially given the astronomical prices of many popular concert tickets right now. I thought I feel like I'm being back in school and me and my friends did something that annoyed the teacher and she scolded us and she told us to sit down. It's a great explanation. As for Miranda, her rep told ABC that she has no comment to add. Okay. Fox News reported that some of the concertgoers left the venue mid-performance after she scolded the group of women. Miranda Lambert. Okay, Ryan, what's your take? I'm, I'm with, okay, so I've seen the selfie. They uploaded it, and uh, it's not what you're probably thinking. They are at the Can very front. It? Yes, I'm about to. They are at the very, very front. They're at the barricade, the barrier. It's five or six women, all with their backs turned to the stage, and then the person taking the picture. And uh, so it's not like kind of like amongst the crowd. No, it's front and center. And so this... I get I get wanting to take the picture to kind of capture the moment, but the I would say the old etiquette is you do that after the show. You don't do that during the show because you should just be looking at the stage and enjoying the show. And uh, so I'm actually on on Lambert's side on this one. I think this selfie was a bit too much in the space it was, and I think she has a very valid point and just kind of put your phone down and listen to the music. So was Miranda Lambert in the selfie in the background? Yeah, I will say they got a pretty awesome picture of her right in the middle of the of the selfie. Yes. So you don't think they should be allowed to take that picture of them at the concert with Miranda Lambert in the background showing that we're literally so close we can get her in a photo? Yeah, with the with the flash turned on is another thing. The flash is on, which is another flash no-go. Is it- well, that's, nah, that's dumb. The, uh, not distracting. distracting. Who cares? It's in front of 15,000 people. And then when she wants people to put their lighters up, for a song you know on command that's not distracting there's a lot of lights moving i I disagree completely i think this is stupid they paid the tickets to go to the show they want to take the picture take a picture i mean would i like to see people who are music fans going to a show and being enthralled in the music but i hate to break it to you miranda lambert your music's not that deep that people are going to sit there and get some sort of amazing soulful experience man by listening to your songs about your boyfriend dumping you right like i just i don't that's not the kind of show it is um, and I don't think that's the case at all. I think it's a commercial pop show and you go to the show and if you pay for the ticket and you want to take a selfie, you take the damn selfie. I think you do it. I think that's crazy. It's crazy to think that there's some sort of etiquette, um, about how someone's supposed to behave at an event where they paid a ticket. You follow the agreed rules and that's it. You move along. Right. I, w- I will add one thing. I don't think she should have stopped the show for it. Like it, like that. It, it, that is not a good enough reason to stop the show. I think that no. being 
frustrated about like I can understand why she was frustrated about the selfie but full on pausing the show for that the only reason you ever stop a show is if somebody is injured and needs help or you have yeah. directions to give the crowd this is not a reason to stop a show the I will agree with that. notion that um, she's so self-absorbed and so important that out of 10,000 5,000 15,000 people however many people were there that one selfie picture is going to somehow ruin or inspire people like that is ridiculous and it's so self-absorbed and I, I frankly I hope she's okay because she's clearly not a happy person if that is so important when you're singing up on stage that someone taking a selfie picture in fact I would go as far as to say that it makes more sense to be grateful that somebody loves your music so much that they paid God knows how many hundreds of dollars to be in the front row and they're there with their friends, and they're so happy to be there that they included her in the picture. How about you be grateful for your fans who pay for your lifestyle, buy your stuff, as opposed to judging them? I, I find I'm offended by the fact that she would even stop the show and do that and give anybody a scolding. I mean, it's not like it's uh, it's not like they're at the proper theater where they said, please turn your cameras and phones off so we don't have any distractions or ringtones through Shakespeare. Not the case. It's a concert, right? I think people think they're way too important. Anyway, um, go have a good time, man. In this world, we need more people to just go have a good time and talk about free marketing. My God. She should thank them. She should give them free concert tickets and buy them a new phone with a better camera so they can take more of them. Thanks for listening to The Shift Podcast. Make sure you subscribe, rate, and review the show and share with anyone you like. Get it on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and CuriousCast.ca.